This week on the According to Sources podcast, I sit down with Cowden Co. Merger Arb and Event Strategist Aaron Glick. We discuss Sprint and T-Mobile, the latest on the trade war's effect on the Mellanox deal, the potential for a Humana bid for Centene, and lastly speculate on some of the potential deals maybe in the pipeline. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital, and this is According to Sources for the week of May 20th, 2019. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. All right. So uh, I wanted to start with Sprint and T-Mobile. And, uh, you know, it was a seesaw of headlines during the day whether or not the Department of Justice would approve this deal. And it started uh, with David Faber sort of mentioning some sources that he had in the morning, and it didn't really have an effect on the stock. And then Bloomberg put out their own story later. So I guess my first question to you is, um, did your opinion on the closure of this deal or the, the chance of this closing change as the day went on? And how do you feel as we stand today, right now? Yes. So for the first part, first question, no, I don't think our opinion changed as those headlines came out. I think we saw it as opportunities to trade around the spread based on what your core belief, whatever your core belief was. Fortunately for us, uh, our analyst, Paul Gallant, has been covering this from a policy perspective, and uh, he had a good opinion on the FCC, the likelihood of them approving the deal. And we've always had, uh, we've always been a bit wary of the states, the state attorney generals. So when it came out early this morning, we saw that as an opportunity to either unwind if you were long or put on a short. And then during the day, I think we just, like you said, you saw a seesaw overreaction to these headlines. Mm-hmm. And then in, in, are people trading around? I think if they were, we didn't see a ton of it. I think it was, it really depends on the size of the fund. So for, the lar- for a larger client that those headlines come out, you may see them lightening up a position, but I think they're trading around a core position, really. Okay. So I guess that then I have sort of two questions then. One, about the state attorney generals. I, I totally get that events like this are great opportunities for people in that position to make a name for themselves and get their name out in the public sphere. But isn't it just noise? In most transactions that we've seen, it's been noise. I think there's a different feeling now at the state level because of the Trump effect. I think these states, particularly these Democratic states, they want to they want to be seen to be doing everything in their power to oppose Trump and the Trump administration or anything that even seems like it's touching or related to Trump or the Trump effect. And so if they could push back on this deal, the Trump FCC approved this deal, this four to three merger, I think there's a risk that this they could come together and it could be real. Uh, on the other hand, I think Sprint, or really I should say T-Mobile, I think their antitrust council or their regulatory council is probably, is probably thinking that they could put a press release on the governor's office and say, you know, this is what you could go out you proved this deal. You got all these great concessions. You did this and this for jobs in the state, and just really almost dare them to go forward with a lawsuit. I think that's probably been the strategy, which is why 
perhaps we've seen states making more noise. Companies want to deal with the, nat- the regulators at the national level first and then come in and clean up the states. I, I think that's how they're trying to they're trying to work through these regulatory reviews. Um, but I do think the state I do think the state risk is real. Right. I was wondering if this would be an opportunity not just for an attorney general to come out and say, hey, this is anti-competitive, but is there some way that a Democrat could use this make America, America first against Trump and say, hey, listen, you're approving this deal between essentially a German-owned company and a Japanese-owned company. What is so great about this? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly you're, – you're writing the press release for them. I think that's exactly why there's some risk at the state level. It's, it's not just this. It's really anything Trump. Like when we saw the Time Warner deal, we didn't see state AGs sign on to the DOJ consent um the G- the DOJ lawsuit excuse me and i think that was part of this this trump effect and there is definitely a push for states and even perhaps the district court so if this does if they do sue and it does go to court i think it's going to be important to see which judge is put on that case i think there's a um a push for for state and state level officials for courts to to fight back against trump so if you're a spread setter like if you put it on today like, what do you think, in terms of timing, people are even considering? All right, there are a range of outcomes here, and I think if the if the states sue to block, we could be looking at a deal closed towards the end of this year. And granted, I don't know exactly how that process would play out, but it's not a near-term event. Closing would not be a near-term event. Is the idea that, I mean, is setting the spread here from the long side, the risk-reward seems pretty horrible. If, you, if you're in the camp, that sprint's going to $3 or something like that. Yeah, and so I'd say we are using, you know, we're, we're using an even lower uh, break price for sprint. I, a lot of that, so for just from a cash flow model perspective, it's, it's tough to make the model work for sprint right now. You're really paying for what's Masa going to do, what other strategic options are available to sprint, which I guess granted has been the case um, for the last few years, but now you've, you've removed T, T-Mobile. As a potential buyer, so we're using a lower downside than three. Our implied odds of closing, I think the the spread closed today a little bit above seventy cents. It's about ten percent mm-hmm. gross, and we were calculating about an eighty-five percent uh, market implied probability of closing. So um, it seems rich. Uh, if I it seems rich, if this most likely still could get kicked down the road another six months. For yes, yeah, rich for a couple reasons. One, the timing delay and potential block by the st- or a, a, a suit a suit to block by the states. Um, DOJ hasn't come in yet today, as we saw from all those headlines. Uh, so there's still risk that the DOJ doesn't approve the deal. Although we, I think we view that as unlikely. Um, and then also risk that the states actually win. Mm. Do you feel like you know? For me, I am small enough that I can be very nimble in this, right? But I am always amazed at sort of the fearlessness in which people bought, you know, T-Mobile today at $80. Or, and I know that's a different game that perhaps they're playing, but you mentioned clients would be more trading around a position than putting something on. Are you ever surprised or are you ever um, – how do you feel in terms of would a client of yours put on three-quarters of a position or half a position in, on a day like today? Absolutely when there's – liquidity when there's a significant liquidity event in the market you you'll see and usually that's day of deal announcement i mean you'll right. see people they're forced to take the the, the liquidity just for right. the size of the fund um 
this isn't answering your question exactly, but I think for especially for for funds that are, are a bit more nimble, I think people and I think people are looking at the next event, not necessarily not necessarily not necessarily the ultimate outcome. So what's the next event here for Sprint T-Mobile? Probably the DOJ decision. At a dollar, when the spread went out to a dollar today, if we think the DOJ is more likely to approve. It would, and by the way, when do you think we could expect that? So the timing expectations have been around early June, which is when the FCC shot clock expires. FCC approval is not even officially in yet, right? So they still need to, uh, the commissioners still need to vote, or they, I don't know if they put together the draft order or released it or circulated it around the FCC, but they still need to vote to approve that. Mm-hmm. You'll see the Democratic commissioners come out with their counter argument. Um, so we're still a couple weeks away from the FCC approval. Uh, usually DOJ comes in before the FCC, so time, everything about this is a bit unusual. Uh, but our guess is early to mid-June, DOJ. Okay. Is there? I, I, I caught one headline on CNBC at the end of the day where they said it had been 18 years since the FCC and DOJ split on a decision. I didn't even catch what the name was. But is there a historical precedent that you guys have looked at? We didn't take a look today, but if it's 18 years, that sounds about right. So let's the, – the other name that to me is the most interesting right now from a pure ARB perspective is Mellanox. Because in a lot of ways, people are looking at Mellanox as just NXPI all over again. Uh, is that how you're seeing it? Whether warranted or not right now, Mellanox I don't think is trading on the fundamentals of – or the likelihood of the deal being approved just from a fundamental perspective. Um, it's this is going to be tied to the China trade war rhetoric for the foreseeable future. Well, well, okay. There's there's so many parallels, right? Besides the fact that it's just a semiconductor company uh, that needs Chinese approval, there's I'm I'm already seeing things such as oh, it's already trading where we believe standalone value was, and I mean those are that echoes exactly what people were saying in an XPI when it was let's say 105, and then eventually I think it went to around 80. Um, this process was more competitive than NXPI was, but it, at the end of the day, I think it wouldn't matter. Any deal would be swatted down. Uh, I assume, I mean, what, what have you been hearing from funds in terms of, regardless of what the standalone value is, no one wants to, you know, buckle in for an 18-month waiting period all over again. Uh, what, what do you think about this, and what have funds been talking to you and saying? Yeah, so it, a week ago, you take a look at Mellanox and you say, well, it's starting to get a little interesting here. Uh, couple, it trades off another dollar, dollar two. It's, uh, it's really looking enticing. It, it continues to trade off. It's really looking enticing. Um, what, what, really what I'm hearing is that it's, it's hard to have an edge in this name because it is so tied to the rhetoric of the trade talks. And like you said, can you count on Intel coming back as a buyer? Probably not. But it doesn't even matter. That's what I'm saying. Does, yeah. It doesn't even matter. If, if this is getting blocked or held up for political reasons, they probably Intel probably is going to face the same, same hurdle. Also, uh, from a downside perspective, we're using 86. Clients that I speak to are generally in the high 80s to low 90 range. So I do think there is – I think that – and I don't know if this is a product of living through NXPI, but I think people – at least the clients that I've been speaking to are pricing pricing in some downside on Mellanox. 
It's almost impossible, though, to say what the downside is, right? Because over the 18 months of NXPI, the company went from a company that was being that was executing to a company that wasn't executing, and that can change. And Mellanox gave amazing guidance last time. I think they gave you know 2020 guidance of almost $11. The street was at like seven, but the process started and it was 70. And so, what's to say what this could be worth a year from now? That's a good point. I think that's also why we've been seeing people that have been getting involved and taking advantage of the recent weakness. Uh, Some of those buyers we've seen uh, buying 95 strike puts out in in March. Um, And that's not an 18-month timeline, but that should get you through uh, most of the, the, at least the near-term trade tension. Um, and what? you could always roll out those puts, but the idea would be to lock in some your downside and have an, an understanding of what your risk reward is. Right. So what do you say to people that say, um, this to me feels much more like a COL, United Tech kind of situation than an NXPI situation? Yeah, I feel like it's somewhere in between Collins and NXPI because Mellanox like NXP, they're non-U.S. companies. Mellanox is Israeli. Uh, being acquired by a U.S. buyer, a powerful U.S. buyer. Now, I don't know if NVIDIA really, you know, is seen as as uh, as equally as an imperative as Qualcomm, uh, but it's an important and, and increasingly important company. And we know that we know that Huawei has ambitions and accelerators. So, str- from a strategic perspective, and this is probably going to get way over my head, but this reminds me. Or this seems more akin to NXP than to a Rockwell Collins for those reasons. But I think it's somewhere in between the two. Well, the thing is, is was Rockwell just a factor of the trade tensions at that moment, where things seemed to be getting better, and it almost seemed like a peace offering to approve it, versus NXPI, where things were in the midst of sort of the worst part of it. If they're going to hold up Rockwell Collins, and for because we're in the middle of a trade war. And they're going to approve it as a peace offering, like you said. I think there's, without a doubt, Melanox falls into that camp as right. well. And I guess, to, I mean, to buy it, even if it got to 105, let's say, right, which it certainly could, I guess, uh, and it would be an enticing buy at 105. I just don't know what my what am I playing for. You know, at that point, am I just playing for, like, long-only funds to find it interesting? Well, I think we've also seen long-only funds rolling out of the stock on these trade, the, the trade war uh, headlines. Uh, people maybe that were sticking around in hopes of a, a, of a counter bid. The story's definitely changed. And it, it all gets back to the initial comment that I made, that Mellanox really is a it, – it, it really is just going to – it's going to be an, it, basically like you're buying a trade war indicator. Mm-hmm. Right. With maybe some muted downside because you still have a you still have a uh, merger agreement and you still have a deal price. Right. In which case you can almost buy any semiconductor company as a trade war indicator. Right. Okay. Um, the other thing that someone mentioned to me is the idea of Iran and that if there was problems in the Middle East, that Mellanox, being Israeli, might get affected by that. I mean, that's that sounds like an Arab scare story to me. Right. Um, I don't know. Don't have a view on that. Me neither. While we are talking about Mellanox, though, if I were to 
choose or if I'm going to look at or what spreads that have blown out on on the China risk, mm-hmm. and there have been a ton, um, even even the oak tree deal, for example. I think Finisar 2.6 is an interesting one to consider from a long perspective. Uh, downside in Finisar is definitely increased, um, and and because of the trade the trade issues and and the Huawei ban, but we have we have pretty good. We have strong confidence in the 2.6 CEO and management team. Uh, they've been to China, I think, three times already. The feedback that I got from from speaking with him recently is that uh, talks with their customers are going well. I think they would be willing to accept a behavioral remedy with some type of uh, supply agreement, um, pricing agreement. And if we look back at the last time you know, mergers were getting cleared and there was all this trade these trade issues back in the fall we had Rockwell Collins we had the Orbitech clack deal mm-hmm. and we had a Claro and Lumentum and I think this Finisar 26 fits into that a Claro and Lumentum camp I and mean, they are competitors mm-hmm. and I think that we have more confidence in the 26 CEO and management team and their relationships in China than we did uh, even for Lumentum and uh, Lumentum at the time was pulling manufacturing out of China and into Vietnam uh, and and two six really seems to be almost doubling down on their China relationship. So, if we're looking at spreads that moved out due to this China trade talk, that's one that that, that I would flag as interesting. Interesting. Uh, I wanted to talk about um, CNC Wellcare Humana and that and that dynamic. Um, it seems like a lot of smoke, but I don't know if there's a lot of fire there. So you've, you've probably have heard a long this. Way to go. We have a long way to go from a regulatory perspective, and you've probably heard this as well, but um, apparently Humana has been giving some positive or had given some positive feedback at some sell-side conferences or events recently, indicating that they would not pursue Centene from a, with a hostile offer. Right. Uh, that being said, they didn't say that they're not interested in buying Centene. So if we compare this to the, the Celgene-Bristol situation, where you had potential Bristol buyers coming out either on their earnings calls or on sell-side pres- sell side conferences and essentially saying uh, either outright or in more or less that they're not interested in Pfizer. Humana's never said they're not interested in Centene. And I think there are probably some funds that are have accumulated positions in Centene and still could still potentially make some noise. Right. Well, we saw Paulson's in it. Um, Sachem is in it. Um, I just can't tell whether or not this is a situation where it's like kind of a free look for them in the same way that Bristol was sort of a free look. Um, people I've talked to have pointed out to the proxy and the line, you know, that no one approached WellCare, but there wasn't there wasn't a line that said anything regarding Centene, and that sort of omission uh, raised eyebrows. Um, what are the important dates coming up in this? All right, so we're looking for when the record date gets set, the shareholder vote gets set. We've seen the NYSE list May 8th as a record date for Centene uh, shareholder vote. We don't know where that came from. I think that's still probably subject to change. I think the setting of that date caused Vol to spike in June. Um, so I, I still think we're TBD and what important, what important dates we're waiting. Do people even want to put this on, uh, seeing as it's going to be another year maybe before this gets done? I think so, because if we look at Celgene and Bristol, people waited 
Uh, I think some people waited, and then once we got the positive ISS headline, the, the spread came roaring in. And I think for Wellcare and Centene, the argument is, uh, where's the spread going to trade once they get uh, Centene shareholder approval? Does it come in sub $20? I, I think that it could. could. It's probably my guess. So what's the next big catalyst? Is the vote, is, there, is this just smoke or is there really fire? We haven't seen an acquirer vote fail unless there's been a clear plan B presented. So you're looking at a $10 move in the next two to three months, depending on when the vote's scheduled. Right, right. Uh, I wanted to move on a little bit from pure ARB to some spec ARB. And since we were talking about WellCare, a name that had looks interesting to me is Magellan. Um, and this has been reported, I believe, on Bloomberg and Deal Reporter and, and a few other places. But the stock gets pushed around by the sort of daily political commentary that comes from the Dems about managed care and future, you know, healthcare policy. Uh, and those have been interesting opportunities because, you know, over the last few years, we've seen acquisitions sort of in the face of all this negativity. Like we saw in the face of negative PBM commentary, Cigna Buy Express or CBS and Aetna get together. So it seems like these companies in managed care uh, either um, – don't care or they don't believe it, uh, and that Magellan would be interesting. At least it is to me. What do you think? Yeah, so kind of a personal disclaimer on all these spec names. I think that there's a certain element of just throwing darts at these things. Sure. Right? Taking the best guess. No question. The Magellan deal certainly makes sense to me. I mean, you've got Reuters, which is a good source for reporting the initial sales process. Um, thematically, it makes sense with Magellan. In behavioral health, we saw United by Genoa last year for $2.5 billion. So, like you said, there have been deals in this space. Uh, it's in the it's in the right niche. It's a size that even a company like Anthem, who's going through their Ingenio RX tran uh, transition, I think it's it's the right size that they could probably still acquire it and not disrupt that bigger process. Mm -hmm. uh, so thematically, it makes sense. Is this something, and going back to what you said about the idea of, of throwing darts, and it, 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 to a degree, it is. And if you're a pure arb, it's not a game that you want to play in any sort of big size. That being said, people, people do it. So do the funds that you cover, in terms of uh, the percentage of you know, emails and calls that you get, what percentage want to talk pure arb and what percentage want to talk about this kind of stuff? Yeah, so I'd say it's it it all depends on what other opportunities are out there in what what we're calling pure arb. And when those opportun opportunities get light, we start getting more calls, we start doing more work on these spec arb names. And there are a lot of different ways to play these names, and we see people buying them or buy writing these names if they think the process is going to drag on. We certainly saw that in Nielsen and it worked or at least helped. Uh, the process has been dragging on for a long time. Um, another strategy that we see people pursuing or, or selling strangles if they think that the process is not going to have a near-term resolution in QEP. We had some people selling April and May strangles. That was a great trade. Um, there was headlines in that today, too, that I just didn't really understand what was incrementally new. Sometimes these, not to say it was completely recycled, but it was essentially the same story. Well, we got Whiting, we got a Cal Calen Petroleum. Um, but they're looking. It just says they're looking. They're and looking. Of, and of course they're looking. That's that's what they do. Yeah, so 
oil prices are up since Elliott announced the deal, so you'd think, uh, well, maybe you know, maybe there's there's upside here, but well performance has been has been down, um, and I think it's kind of sagged peers. And if the companies that they're starting to mention are Whiting uh, and Callen, that's probably going to be a stock deal, probably a low premium stock deal. Uh, and also, in addition to just the, the action in the oil industry, if you want to look at the action in, in Elliott names, the smaller name was that MITK, but where they've lobbed in bids, Athena, they lobbed in a bid, and, and they ended up not really being concrete. So when they talk about, oh, well, there's an 875 perhaps floor, there's not. There, no, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think the risk-reward in QEP, personally, I think it's skewed to the downside. Uh, like I said, if they're mentioning companies like Whiting and Callen, if that's a stock-for-stock stock deal, I, hard to see that being above $8. Uh, I think there's still a, a deal premium in QEP. Um, obviously, after today's move, there is. And I think without a deal, this, this likely goes down to six six fifty. Uh, the other name that, and this is to me the name I find the most interesting, is this company at home H O M E. Uh, and the reason that I find it interesting is, in a way, uh, a, a single story with two elements came out last week uh, from Reuters. The first element was that uh, at home was in advanced deal negotiations with PE. Um, they said Hellman and Freeman. And then the second element was that Kohl's had lobbed in some interest. So you had this idea of a deal that is seemingly close with this optionality of maybe Kohl's is there. And so to me, it's not something that I'm big in, but to me, in a lukewarm spec R board, this is the best on the board. Well, yeah, it, what's it, you mentioned Magellan and you mentioned At Home, and what I like about both of those names is there's not a big deal premium priced into the stock already, unlike QEP, I think. And so usually when we look at these spec ARB names, you're, once you get involved post some type of press report, you're already putting yourself at an, at an unattractive risk reward. Look at Biohaven. There's Perfect like $20 example. in that. So yes, agree. And Magellan and At Home, I think both, uh, they don't have a big, they still don't have a big deal premium priced in, which I like. Uh, I agree with you, At Home, that story was pretty interesting. And it made me question why, why did this leak, who leaked this and why? What was the motivation behind this sure. story? So how do you interpret that? Was it someone from the buyer side wanting to put more pressure on PE? Was it Kohl's wanting to see what the reaction would be to them potentially doing a deal like this? I really don't know. It was, it was, an, it was, a, pretty unique, it was a pretty unique leak. Was it the banker trying to goose a little bit more out of the PE firms? Yeah, could have been. I've, you know, I, I love talking about M&A journalism and source motivations and why things leak, and you know, I think it's the same thing. Um, and then you have the other element of this. Uh, you know, there was a, a Bank of America note out today on FND, Florin Decker, and it talked about how, you know, because they're an importer from China, that in their, it was talking about the tile business, that it would wipe out 2020 earnings in, an, in its entirety. At home is a, they're an importer. I think 60% is from Chinese vendors. What could this derail that? Yeah, so absolutely. When I see that, I think it's, it's, um, it, it raised questions to me specifically uh, as to why Kohl's would be pursuing the deal. But I guess private equity, if they're levering it up, probably raises those questions even more. May even hint at 
why there was a leak. Right. Um, but the valuation for at home is still cheap, and I think it's probably suffered from from having. I think it's about three times lever- leverage. Um, so leverage retailer, and the backdrop of all of these trade talks, valuation seems depressed for the stock that's growing earnings. I think it's growing twenty twenty five percent. So it's an attractive company. The at home space is it's a defensive space, right? Um, it's it's resistant, so? like it's, it's resistant to Amazon. Resistant to Amazon, yeah, a little bit. Uh, so, like Magellan, thematically, it seems like a retailer that makes sense to be taken out. We but, haven't seen. When's the last time we saw a retailer buy another retailer? It's a good point. I don't even remember. Well, Amazon buying Whole Foods does right. Amazon count? <laughs> right. Yeah, sure, yeah. that counts. Um, so I kind of just wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit about Bristol Celgene, not not from. Um, you know, what do you want to do now perspective, but more from the idea of, you know, you've been doing this a good, a good amount of time. How do you, if you were going to, you know, review the whole situation, how it went down, you know, what would you have done different? Are you happy with, with the calls you made? Uh, what did you learn? Yes, yeah, so it, I think it reiterated some of the, th- the lessons that we've learned over the past several acquirer vote situations and that was that if there's not a clear plan b it's very difficult to get a an acquirer's vote or to get the, the deal blocked from the acquirer side and that was the case here there was not a clear plan b put forward um put forward for for bristol absent absent the deal uh so that's probably the biggest lesson learned in terms of what i would uh, what i would have done differently uh, for this one, not much. I think we were fortunate to have access to some of these companies, but the earnings the timeline of earnings was kind of like perfect. Right after Wellington came out with that report, they also were most of these potential buyers were available at these conferences. So you really had an opportunity to to flesh out if there was a a a, um, a, a potential competing bid for for Bristol. So I think it whether it was just good fortune. I think. Um, I think we were, we made a pretty good call on that one. Yeah. I think if I was to look back, you know, I try to listen in all these situations, you know, to, to read every article, to listen to every interview, to be on every conference call. And in a way, I feel like I become hypersensitive to every little word that is said in an interview. And there was an interview between Ed Hamben of Bloomberg and the CEO of Bristol. And at the end, he was hammering him repeatedly on, you know, it's a yes or no question. Have you been approached? formally or informally, and he wouldn't answer the question. He straight up wouldn't answer the question, and it, it, and it kind of freaked me out. And, uh, and then it sort of all resolved itself shortly afterwards, but it's hard not to sort of cling on every word of an article or every word coming out of a CEO's mouth sometimes and not, especially in a situation like that where you could really, it could, it could have blown out you know, to a crazy proportion. So that was my take. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and I think it all comes down to... I didn't trade it well. Is that yeah. I, for me, it, that comes down to like just the, the big, a bigger lesson that I take away from a lot of these ARB situations is that there could be 10, 15 different pieces of noise that come out, but I like to try to boil it down to what's the one or two things that really matter in the spread, what, and what's just noise? So do you think that a company like Wellington will do this again, or do you think that they will see the lesson learned from this and just sort of go back to the status quo? I could see T. Rowe and Wellington continue to. I think they need to differentiate themselves, and this seems like a 
good strategy. Mm. It gets your name out there. Yeah. Any final thoughts, Anadarko? Deal spread still looks attractive. I mean, just from a pure merger R perspective, uh, still I think it's still two and almost almost two dollars, maybe a little less now. Um, just a, I think that's just a product of people being in early. There's been a lot of pain in Oxy. Not everybody was um, was hedged. But I think the way they would like to been level level of surprise when Chevron walked away. Surprised, definitely, but not um, not totally blown away. No. This is a pretty attractive price for Chevron, opportunistic bid, take a billion dollars. Now the question is, will then, I mean, it was still $50 billion, so it, it was sizable. Uh, do people then call you and then think, okay, well, they want to buy something, so where will they go? Or do people think that they just saw this one asset opportunistically on the table and now it's gone? I would say the latter, but I would too. I, yeah. The other, another interesting conversation I was having, and really just floating this idea around. Let's say Oxy buys Anandarko. They go through all the integration pain. Stock continues to underperform relative to Chevron. Does Chevron come back and buy the combined entity in a year? In a year? Mm. Maybe I don't know. That that would that would be pretty good arm yeah. from Chevron, right? <laughs> That's a long ways off though. Um, any other names? You know, you gave me a good list of names here to talk about. Let's just let's just fly through a couple. Uh, Cray, you think they get an overbid? No idea. I think situations like Cray, uh, you look at regulatory risk is 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 well. There's no China review, so let's say it's on the safe end. You've got a good buyer, and there's some questions about whether they ran a process. It's a strategic asset. I think these are one of the, this is a name that if you're running a large book, you probably just have to have exposure to. Yeah, I get exposure, but I mean, fine, pay fifty cents over. I mean, this really got kind of out of hand. Agreed. Um, how about um, Nielsen? I mean, aren't you sick of talking about it? Yeah, Nielsen. I just process drags on for a long time like this. Never feels good. Nielsen um, cars. Arconic when it was happening. They just get to be like a weight on you that I, I like I get sick of looking at them um, I kind of eventually don't think this is even gonna happen if I had to bet I'm not betting but if I was I don't think it happens um, Caesars same kind of name no view on Caesars it's actually being covered from by somebody else at the firm but I get back to you on that one and this Avaya Avaya so yeah so I'm probably gonna put my foot in the mouth put my foot in my mouth later but Avaya is one that we like as a takeout target uh, we probably liked it too early um but this has that drag potential though i feel like it has the drag potential i see that uh but i also think it makes sense for them to do a deal uh and the the pe firms that have been speculated Permira, searchlight they both have portfolio companies in the space that can extract a lot of synergies i think before this last earnings report, there was probably a pretty wide bid ask between management, maybe top shareholders, and some of the buyers. And perhaps with the recent stock performance, that bid bid ask narrows. And all right, that's our take. I think that's where we are. So it could be more likely that we see a deal after that earnings release than, than before. Right, right. All right, five questions, and I'll get you out of here. Um... So we talked a lot about, this is question one, we, we talked a lot about M&A journalism today, mostly because, 
you know, I'm very surprised at the reactions that traditionally iffy journalism can have on stocks. And I'm also surprised when people in the industry, smart people, uh, write to me and they say, hey, have you seen this story? And they give it pretty substantial weight, I guess. Uh, how do you sort of weigh all these different sources, whether it's CTFN or Deal Reporter or Street Insider, and there's so many. So like, how do you sort of sift through it all? Well, we keep track of, of any pre-deal spec, just throw it in a master spreadsheet so we can go back and search and say which ones worked, which ones didn't. Uh, but generally... So you have like a batting average for all these? We're trying to create one. I mean, okay. I think we'll probably talk to me in a couple of years, we'll probably have a pretty good okay. good sample set. But it also changes. I mean, a lot depends on uh, whether these firms hire someone new. Like we saw CTFN mm -hmm. for a while. I think people probably looked at that as not the most reliable source. And I think they made a few hires and they were the lead source on, on Zayo. Yeah. They got it right. Yep. So I think also what's important is tracking uh, the actual reporter. And that's something that we're trying to do a better job of doing, and it's just going to take some time to build it out. Right. I agree. It, 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 at the end of the day, it comes down to the reporter. Uh, and they don't, they don't move around a lot, but uh, there's certainly ones that you can hold weight on and, and, and have reliability more than others. Um, are you surprised? Do you get those same kind of, of, of calls, though, where, where people will say, hey, have you seen this Street Insider story? And... You, you don't you like furrow your brow and say like I can't believe that he's like even asking or, or the deal dot com or right. something. Right. Yeah. They. Is there a lack of like investor uh, education in terms of? I feel like a lot of people just treat it all the same. It could be. I. I. It surprises me too. I. I don't know. I really don't know why people look at some of these other sources. It could just be lack of opportunities. Right. Okay. Uh, question two. I'm going to get more personal now. Um, what single event has had the biggest impact on your life? So my wife probably won't like when I say this, but when, when, we, uh, when my parents bought a dog, when I had my first pet, 20 years old, um, I totally changed my perspective on animals. Like, so growing up, I was like, why would somebody keep a wild animal in their house just didn't make any sense to me anybody that has grown up with pets that's probably like a crazy thing to hear but just totally changed my perspective on like living creatures like anybody who has a pet knows if you have a dog you have a cat like that's part of the family right they have a personality so that's a total total 180 for today me. so yeah tell what's your animal life look like today so i adopted a cat when my wife and i got married betty <laughs> that's right and uh, so that's where we stand. I was in the same boat. I didn't grow up with pets either. And then uh, I had a dog uh, through a relationship. Uh, I then lost the dog through the relationship. Oh, that's tough. But uh, yeah, it changed my perspective too. Uh, you see sort of like the emotional, it was the emotional aspect of the animal. Uh, and that made it seem more real to me. I never really got it. I never really got the obsession over pets until I had my own. And then, uh, yeah, they're emotional. Uh, all right, question three. Give me uh, two, we'll call them pet peeves of yours, just two things that just bother you. Uh, and then on, on the back end of that is how do you manage stress on a personal level? So the one pet peeve that's really pops out for me is when technology's not working right. Okay. 
probably because I'm pretty powerless to correct it. Right. And just like not tech savvy, really. Like if your iPhone freezes and there's nothing. iPhone freezes or I can't log into my computer or Excel keeps bugging out. Um, And then how do I manage it? Interesting that you say that. I have been doing more work on temperament control and, and and reading about buddhism not that i'm buddhist from a religious perspective but i just think it's the mindset that they have is interesting and uh trying to understand like what's my desire in this situation and and why and then come back to well, from the buddhist perspective i i'm i really don't know anything about buddhism but strip 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 out that desire and you're left with just you know nothing baseline right but in terms of like the temperament man is that what you call it, temperament management yeah so like what do you do you meditate what do you do i just think i become present to that like what am i desiring in this moment mm-hmm. and and why and just realize that that's something that i have control over right right for me like i find that the the noise on the pet peeves meaning how much they bother me like for for example it could be loud chewers in a movie theater you know like something something small but if if my own personal state is not in a good place i'm hypersensitive to that and suddenly it becomes everything um without a doubt you know and so it's almost like but if I'm in a good place, if I'm mentally in a healthy place, then I, I can block all that out. None of that matters. You miss a subway, who cares? You catch the next one. If I'm not in a good place, oh, my God, I miss a subway, life is over. Well, what I've seen, too, for, it's interesting you say that, is if I bring this, so if I try to have this mindset consistently throughout the day, I've found that I've gotten better at flattening those ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Just consistently be present to it. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, okay. Next question. If a genie was going to grant you one wish, what would it be? It is a tough one. I'm, I'm trying to think if I should go like um, real sincere with this. Or... Right. Do you go sincere? Do you go shallow? Right. Exactly. <laughs> My head's all over the place. <laughs> I kind of want to say like one wish. Technology always works perfectly for me. <laughs> no pet peeves. Um, is there anything, maybe I'll just make this, I'll, 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 I'll simplify it and, and I'll make it a, uh, a shallow wish or like a commercial wish. Is there, is there something that you would really want to own or really want to have? Do you like, do you love boating? Do you, would you, do you want a boat? Do you want a, like a crazy car, new apartment? Here's what I would wish for. I would wish for enough financial freedom where I could have complete control of my time every day. So it doesn't need to be doesn't need to be a million dollars a year doesn't need to be a hundred million dollars just just enough where i could live comfortably and control your time and control my time and and but i mean the counterpoint to that is you know i don't think i don't know if a carl icon can control his time right that's a, it's a it's a wish, man. I, it, right. My, okay. Genie's gonna grant it. My friend says always, uh, you know, life is all about not being in a rush. You know, he's like, if as long as I'm not in a rush, I'm pretty happy. So I like that. I, I get what you're saying. I could definitely do better on that point. Um, okay. This is the last one. Uh, since it's almost Memorial Day weekend, uh, what would you describe as like a perfect summer weekend day in the summer for you? Definitely gonna need to be by a beach. 
probably sleep in, have a nice breakfast, play basketball. Are you any good? Am I any good? I would say hell yes. People <laughs> I play with are probably would just laugh that off. Um, definitely try hard though when I'm out there. My 110%. entire childhood was the full, just solely focused on being good at basketball. Yeah, I never got there. Yep. Some things just all right. You know, genetics plays some <laughs> role in all, these, all this. Um, that's it, man. Thanks for coming back again and doing this again. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it was fun. It. Yep. Thanks for having me on. See you, man. My thanks again to Aaron Glick from Cowan. As a reminder, you can always email me any thoughts or questions or anything that I'm not talking about that you wish I was or you think I'm talking about something and I have it dead wrong. And the handle there is michael at accordingtosourcespodcast.com or you can follow me on Twitter. The handle there is at accordtosources. That's a, at A-C-C-O-R-D-T-O sources. And that's the show for this week. Uh, again, it's Mike Samuels, founder of Portfolio of Broom Street Capital. Have a great Memorial Day weekend, and I will be back soon.